Spencer, what'd you get up to this weekend? Got into some skiing, got into a little bit of biking. Not much, though. It's been kind of cold and snowy here in Colorado. It has. I got after it, too. Went skiing Winter Park. Got some fresh powder on those bumps. My legs are nice and sore today. But you know what? Guys like us, we go skiing, go biking on the weekend. We're healthy people. We are the target demographic for our sponsor this week, and that is Health IQ, the life insurance company that works with skiers, runners, healthy people, cyclists, because it can give healthy people like us a great quote on life insurance. That's right, Fred. And you've got no excuse not to have life insurance. You should just do it right now. Go to healthiq.com slash velonews. It's real easy. You get that free quote and you support us here at the Velonews podcast. Thanks to Health IQ. I'm praying for more snow, man. I want to get, get more skiing in. Or fat biking. Yeah, true. All right. On with the show. It's the Velonews Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison. On the other line, we have Andrew Hood coming to us from southern Spain. Where are you, Hoodie? Uh, good afternoon, fellas. I'm here in Fuenjirola, which is on the Costa del Sol of southern Spain. And it's beautiful down here. It's like uh, San Diego weather, 70 degrees, sunny, nice little breeze off the ocean. Great weather for a bike race. Do you want to trade locations right now? I mean, I could, I'd love to just like body swap with you and be in Southern Spain right now. I could do that. You know, I, I've been missing that Colorado pal. I mean, I'm a Colorado boy <laughs> and uh, I just miss, I can't, I can't afford to ski in Colorado anymore. <laughs> Not with that journalist salary, that's for sure. Yeah, we can't afford to do anything in Colorado <laughs> anymore. Uh, we have a good show this week. Hoodie, da- you're down in Southern Spain for Ruta del Sol, which is kicking off. Uh, tomorrow, that would be Wednesday. Um, Chris Froome will be racing there. All eyes will be on him. We have lots of early season racing going on this week, though. As cycling fans, we've been in hibernation for the last couple of weeks. At least I have. It's taken everything for me to turn on road races. But this past week, we saw a number of road races going on. Tour of Dubai, the Oroi Paz race down New in Colombia. First time for that one. We have Ruta del Sol coming up. We have the Tour of Oman coming up. We're right in the middle of the early season of racing. Early, early. And guys, you know, these races aren't exactly indicators of who's going to win the Tour de France or Paris Roubaix or anything like that. But as fans, we can look at these early season races and garner some good information and some good opinions. Out of them. So today on the show, we're going to talk about what we can look for in some of these early season races and what they can tell us about what's going on in cycling. Uh, second half of the show, we're going to talk with Andy Hood about his feature story that came out in the January February print issue of Vela News. That feature story is called Fear Factor because Hoodie, you talked to a bunch of cyclists about what makes them afraid. Uh, we're going to get to that later, but first off. What what scares a pro cyclist, Hoodie? Joe Rogan, Fear Factor, right? Something like that. That's uh, right. That's bad. Bad joke. Yeah. The, the interesting thing that I found about this story is when we started talking about it last uh, fall, uh, you know, it, it was into the psychology of how do these guys overcome the fear of crashing, the fear of descending, the fear of the speed and the mayhem that's part of pro cycling. When I started talking to these guys, that was the last thing that they're afraid of. They were just like, "Ma." That's just part of bike racing, crashing. And then it just led down this kind of rabbit's hole of all these other different kind of uh, mind games these guys have to deal with. So they're scared of having a mismatched kit, right? Or Mm. wearing this different colored socks, something like that? Well, the 
have, we'll have to keep listening to find out, right? Yeah, that's, so that's that's what that's what you call a teaser in the biz. Keep what, everyone waiting for what it. What keeps a pro cyclist up at night? with fear and anxiety. Uh, but first, let's get into it, guys. We have racing, actual legitimate road bike racing going on. This past week was the Tour of Dubai. This coming week is the Tour of Oman. We had Ruta del Soro, Sol, Oroipaz, the Tour of Algarve. Valenciana, a.k.a. the Tour of Alejandro Valverde. Let's get into it with Dubai. You know, Hoodie, when you think about the Dubai Tour, what sticks out in your mind as the thing that like we cycling fans can garner from the Dubai tour. The thing that struck me, Fred, from these early season races is uh, parity among the sprinters. We've seen an incredible uh, wealth of sprint victories by just about every good sprinter in the peloton. You know, at the Tour Down Under, I think uh, a different rider won almost every stage. I think Simon got two. Uh, all these races we've seen, Degenkolb win here, Sagan win there, Ewan win there, uh, Kittle win, and to me, it just kind of represents the, the wealth of the sprints, sprinters that cycling has right now, probably unparalleled in cycling history. And then at the same time, there's not many races where these guys have a chance to even sprint, at least not once you get into the meat of the European calendar. So these guys are all really gunning to get a few early wins in the bag. Cavendish, Greipel, all these guys want to win now because they know the Tour de France, there's only going to be four or five, maybe six stages where they can sprint anyway in the course of three weeks of racing. I see your point, Hoodie, and I'm hopeful that that's the case and we'll have a great summer of sprint matchups. But I can't help but wonder, having watched a little of these highlights, these races, if actually this is maybe more of an indication that these these major sprint trains have yet to really come together. We, You know, this, this Dubai tour seemed like there was a lot of weird kind of freelance-type situations in these finishes. I was reading a bit about that. Dane Cash, our reporter on the ground there, was talking a little about it. I mean, you know, Kittles, Katusha, Alpecin team didn't seem to have it together. Cavendish was kind of having to go free form without a lot of support from Dimension Data. I don't know if I'm seeing these sprint trains come together yet. Yeah, you know, we saw that with Gronowagen, for example, where, I mean, he's a real fast finisher. He won the first stage of the Dude by Tour, but it really looked like he did so with just one or two teammates kind of pulling him to the front there. So uh, maybe the Dubai tour, what we're looking for is can these sprint teams like get their, get their act together? Well, that's another wrinkle of this rule that goes back to reducing the size of the team rosters this year, especially for the bigger teams that want to have a, a dual program of a sprint team, as well as a GC team going to some of these bigger stage races. They're going to have a real hard team, real hard time dividing up their team. You know, do you bring three or four, uh, climbers to help Zachar and Katusha, or you to bring the whole team to help Kittle in the sprints. That's going to be a big quandary for the, all the teams all the way across this racing te- season during the World Tour schedule. Well, the one team that seemed to really nail it was Quickstep. So Quickstep came into the Dubai Tour, and they won the overall, and I believe two stages with Ella Viviani. And this is just another example of how Quickstep does seem to be this well-oiled sprint machine. So last year they had Kittle, Kittle leaves. They have Viviani come in. And Viviani, let's be honest, I mean, he's a fast sprinter, but he's not the same quality as Kittle. They also lost Jack Bauer, who was a really, really impressive, powerful member of that sprint train. So there was part of me that thought, you know, maybe Quick Step is going to have lost a step at races like this. They don't have Kittle. They don't have Bauer. That you know, So the personnel has changed there. But that just didn't seem to be the case. I mean, Viviani, he's winning. They're able to set up this the sprints. They're able to pull back the breakaways. I don't know. Chapeau 
to Quickstep for uh, for really, I don't know, coming out and hitting one out of the park, as they say. Mm. Baseballs. Well, they have that. They have that advantage of that's a team that doesn't even really have a GC program anymore. They lost uh, Dan Martin and some other riders, so they're going all in with sprints and classics. And a lot of the riders can kind of switch between both of those disciplines. And the guy I'm anxious to see perform this year in the sprints is Gaviria. I mean, it seems like it's been parody so far, but once Gaviria gets to Europe, that could change very quickly. I I kind of like this. I like how a team like Quickstep has a very specific identity like that. And in, in a world where every big world tour team is is trying to do all, be all things to everyone and always have a rider for everything, I kind of like how Quickstep is such a specialist thing. And also, have you ever thought about this? You could call it the Dude Abides Tour. Mm, I like that. I don't know why I just thought of that, but I wanted <laughs> to throw it out Abides there. Tour. Uh, well, the Dude Abides Tour gave us some drama on the penultimate stage, which finished up that steep climb to Hatadam because we had a breakaway. And not only did we have just any old breakaway, this breakaway had two American riders in it from Rally Pro Cycling. And as listeners of the show probably know, Rally has made the step up to Pro Conti this year. They're on a pretty ambitious European and Middle Eastern racing schedule. And here it is, their first big Middle East race. And they put Robin Carpenter and Brandon McNulty into the breakaway. And this was pretty noteworthy because the breakaway almost survived till the end. McNulty was the final guy from the breakaway to make it out there, he reached the bottom of the steep climb to Hatadam. I believe he had about a 30-second gap, and he's chugging away, and then, oh, oh, his body just sort of shut down. It was the proverbial lion chasing down a wildebeest on the savannah. Oh, yeah, and you could see he was struggling so hard. You know, he's looking pretty smooth, and then all of a sudden, head bobbing, shoulders bobbing, you know, just doing the, like, rocking back and forth on the bike, trying to get every last watt out of it. He got caught didn't survive, but you know, it was a really great showing from this guy who's been on our radar for a few years now because he was the junior world champion in the time trial two years ago when the race was in Dubai. And, um, you know, I wrote a story about Brandon McNulty last year and sat down and interviewed with him and he's this tall drink of water. I mean, he was 19 years old now. He was 18 when I talked to him. He's this tall, skinny kid, you know, kind of like big arms and big legs and just rail thin. And he has just a ton, a ton of talent. This kid is going to be racing grand tours, maybe winning stages, maybe contending for races, you know, for classics. He's a big time trial engine. And, you know, this result at, uh, at Dubai kind of put him on the international, uh, in, in the international conscious. You know, if it was... 50 meters shorter, maybe, he would have perhaps got that win. Yeah. It, was, it was that close. We actually have an interview with Brandon McNulty. So Brandon McNulty last year in 2017 made his pro debut with Rally. And, you know, it didn't go super great. He had the opportunity to go to World Tour. He went with Rally, which is a domestic team, and um, was racing in Europe in the early season. I believe it was the Volta Algarve. It crashed, broke his hip. Ooh. Then later in the year, he was training, crashed, gave himself a concussion. So he had some injuries last year. Despite that, he you know he almost won the Redlands Bicycle Classic. He had some good results. So I caught up with him in December to talk about his debut year as a pro and what his ambitions are this coming season. Let's uh, let's have a listen. You know, Brandon, 
I wrote a story about you this past year about your uh, decision to race with Rally and to race in the United States and then also do some time with USA Cycling. And um, now it's the end of your first season as a pro. You know, let's talk about how the first season went. Um, you know, you had some crashes, you had some setbacks, you also had some good results. Um, I guess let's start with the early part of the season. Um, what, what was that like for you? Uh, it was tough. I mean, like, I think third race day of the year, I fractured my pelvis. I mean, it definitely did not get off to a good start. And then, you know, it took like a month off the bike, basically, and then I slowly had to work back up through Redlands, and then was basically able to, you know, be good all the rest of the year. But yeah, it was definitely not a good start. <laughs> How did that crash happen? Um, It was a pretty windy day, and it was a race in Portugal, and, uh, like, the field had been, like, splitting and then regrouping, and then so guys were kind of being pretty twitchy, like, nervous. And at one point, like, the two guys in front of me kind of clipped, clipped each other, and my front wheel got jammed into them because they both hit the brakes and basically had nowhere to go and I just like rolled over and landed right on my hip did you know something was wrong immediately um so like it hurt like I there's a lot of pain in my inner leg but I just figured it was you know because something always hurts when you crash whether it's your hip or knee or whatever so I was like I'll just get on and finish the day and it was probably <laughs> there's 80k left it was like a 213k day and that was the longest ADK of my life. It was just every bump was like, ah. But I still didn't want to kind of accept that anything was broken because I had the whole, you know, spring campaign with the national team plus a few more races with Rally. But, like, we got back to the hotel, and I couldn't walk. Had to, like, have Wahlberg get me on one of the uh, luggage things, like, on wheels and push me to dinner and stuff. So then the next morning I went and got an X-ray and, yeah, the doctor said, yeah, you have good reason to be in pain. So, yeah, it was yeah, no fun. What was your reaction when, sort of from an emotional perspective, when you found out that you had a broken pelvis and that you were looking at, you know, a few weeks off the bike and months of recovery? Yeah. Um, I kind of just had to stay, accept, like, accept it and stay positive about it. Like, I couldn't let it ruin the season because, I mean, it was just, it happened. There was something I could do about it, so I just had to get through it. It wasn't. It wasn't easy mentally, but it was just like, it was one of those things you just had to accept. It wasn't like, I didn't get too down about it, besides just like getting having to miss races, but yeah, I just tried to stay positive. What about the, just the concept of crashing like that and how quickly something like that can happen in a race? I mean, was that at all a concern to you? Did you feel gun shy at all when you did come back to racing? Yeah, it was pretty crazy, like, even just thinking that I broke the pelvis, because like, you know, most guys, you know, break shoulders, collarbones, that kind of thing, but like that's a it's kind of a big bone to break so that was that was interesting and then especially because i had never broken anything before and then yeah i remember the first race back at redlands it was a little little gun shy in the pack for the first few days but it came back pretty quick yeah what did that result at redlands tell you i mean you were second overall yeah um about where your fitness was at that point um so the opening time trial, I was actually somewhat disappointed about because, like, leading into the race, I've been doing, like, really good numbers, like, for my prepping for the time trial. And then race day, I was just flat, like, 50 watts lower than I even could have expected. And then my legs came around the next day. And then so I was really happy with the Oakland stage. Everson and I were second and third. And then, yeah, the rest of the race, I felt really good, which was pretty good confidence for me that I could, you know, be back at a good level. 
Because you had a second crash, right? Uh, later in the summer. That yeah. was a later because I'm trying to remember there was because I know that there was the early season injury yeah. and then there was a second one, correct? Yeah, that was the concussion on that one. I was in uh, late August, maybe early or late July, early August, right after Tour of Alsace in France. I was uh, so I flew home from or not home. I flew to Park City from France the night before, and then went out for like an easy spin and then. I don't know, I just kind of, like, lost concentration for a second on a bike path, and it, like, took a sharp turn, and I missed it, I guess, and just rode straight off, and then that's, like, the last I remember of it. I basically woke up in the hospital that, like, later that day, wow. which was, it was scary. <laughs> so this this concussion came from a train crash? Yeah, yeah. What was, what were your symptoms like after that? I've heard, you know, people talking about, you know, sensitivity to light, spinning room. What, uh, what was it like for you? Uh, I didn't really have sensitivity to light, but it was just... I don't know really how to describe it. I just felt weird. Like, I I always thought a concussion would be, would be like you know a raging headache kind of thing, but it was it was just like a bizarre feeling. I just did not feel like myself, and that lasted for like probably two weeks of just feeling kind of out of it. Like even once I was cleared by the doctor, I would like lay down on the couch and just fall asleep. Like it was just a, kind of a really bizarre feeling. Were you able to train? Um, I took. I think I was off for a week, and then the doctor cleared me, and so yeah, I only missed a week, and then getting back into it was pretty slow too. So what would you? What was your buildup like then for Worlds? I mean, this is happening kind of late in the season. You've already had some time off the bike due to another injury. You know, how was your buildup for Worlds, and what was your confidence like uh, heading into Bergen? Um, yeah, so I started my prep for Worlds right after coming off that concussion. I was supposed to do Colorado, but missed it because of that, which I was pretty bummed about. But, yeah, leaning in the worlds, I had to do it at home in Phoenix, which was never fun because of the weather. So I think that it wasn't the most ideal thing for me. And uh, yeah, I remember I was – some days I would do my, my workouts really well, and other days I would feel kind of flat. So, like, leading into it, I honestly really didn't know where I would be because, like, like I said, one day I would be, like, way above or, like, right at where I need to be for my numbers, and then I would do a longer workout and just be, like, like not feel good at all. But, yeah, I didn't – let me think. Yeah, I did my, like, one week before I did, like, the kind of a shakedown TT, like a 40-minute effort, and I was finally able to, like – feel decent but like the numbers still weren't weren't where a u23 not like world championship would need to be but luckily once i got to norway like everything kind of came around and i've had my best you know 50 minute power i've ever had really which was good but yeah the guy that won was just on another level <laughs> yeah, yeah no, we looked at that time too and we're like wow that's it <laughs> so did you feel like you were at you were the best that you could have been uh, just given the circumstances for Worlds? Yeah, definitely. Like, obviously, had I had more race days and no injuries, I think I could have been a lot better. But the circumstances, that was probably the best I could have been. So what's your overall assessment for your first professional year? You know, the crashes, the good results, the setbacks, et cetera. What are you going to come away from this year with? <laughs> I think it was a, a nice welcome to pro cycling, I guess. Like, all my junior years were pretty uneventful, so this was – I guess kind of a wake-up call, like what what cycling, like how tough it can be. But I think I learned a lot. 
more off the bike, just, you know, fighting with injuries and stuff and still having to come through with results and stuff. But, yeah, overall, it was, it was a really nice year, and I'm really excited for this year, I think. So what strikes me about this kid, McNulty, is that he, I don't know, I mean, he's this world-class athlete, but you get the sense that he's still just kind of a kid. Yeah, right. I mean, and you can you can see it just in, in the way he rides, and he's just, yeah, he's, thank goodness he found bike racing, because it would be pretty awkward to just be, like, that tall and skinny and just kind of hanging out on campus or something, not having something to do like bike racing. When we did the feature story on him, his dad told us all these stories of like getting Brandon onto a bicycle as a child. And you know, getting kids onto bikes is kind of tough. And sometimes they don't really want to do it or ride with their dad. But he said Brandon was like determined as this child to ride to the top of the hill and then ride over the hill and like complete a lap around the circuit. This was in their mountain bike course by their house outside of Phoenix. And then they sent us some photos of little. Those are awesome. Little little boy Brandon yeah, on a gotta, mountain bike. If you can find those, they're in the the article. I think you did for the magazine on him last spring. There's, yeah, there's a few in there. That was in the April issue, the classics issue. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, so moving ahead, the other early season race that we had go on this past week was the Oro y Paz down in Colombia, and this was a really exciting and important race because it was Colombia as a cycling nation, hosting a major international race, having big teams come down there, having stars from the sport come down there, and using it as a way to showcase both the roads, but also Colombian cycling. And the Colombians definitely uh, performed quite well. If you look at the top GC riders, I, I don't know of how many non-Colombians there were in the top uh, top 20 there. One, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were real keyed up, ready to go. Now, the guy who won the overall is a young rider on Team Sky, and that is Egan Bernal. Now, Hoodie, you wrote a piece about him last week. What can we expect to see out of this guy? What are, what are the big takeaway points on Egan Bernal? Kudos, by the way, on predicting that one. Nicely done. Yeah, this, this kid is, is, uh, seems to have all the, all the pieces to really become a, a pretty big star. The fact that Sky scooped him up, I think, says a lot right there. I mean, the Sky class this year, the, the four riders they picked up going into 2018, these young riders they scouted, they're all really the top riders of this new generation, all these kind of 19, 20, 21-year-old kids they picked up. And that tells you that Sky's already planting the seed for the, the kind of next wave. Uh, and with Bernal, he is a kid that uh, came out of mountain biking, came out of uh, track racing, can almost kind of almost even time trial for Colombia, which he won. He won the Colombia National Time Trial Championship, which doesn't really say a lot, but it reveals that he in fact can uh, perhaps not just bleed time as much as some of these other Colombians have in the past against the clock. And what's remarkable about this guy is a VO2 max off the charts. He was uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Rob Arnold, spoke to him during the uh, Tour Dead Under. And uh, because there was an interview with uh, Bernal a year or two ago in a Spanish newspaper, and Bernal said that his VO2 max, 88, 89. And so then, uh, <laughs> so then uh, Rob Arnold asked him about it, and he goes, oh, no, now it's even better because when I was doing 88, 89, I wasn't even training yet. So he says he has a VO2 max, low 90s. Ouch. Well, uh, that's, that's some talent. That's definitely some talent right there. You don't get that from doing spin class and uh, going and doing your spin intervals. <laughs> no. Um, the, so 
the noteworthy thing about Bernal is that so he wins this race and he does so by attacking the race leader on the final day. And that man, of course, being Nairo Quintana, who is, I don't know, at this point, like the most popular man to ever come out of Colombia. Um, what do you think that that race win meant for Bernal and just for the Colombians? You know, Quintana has been on the radar for them for a number of years now. And now they have this new young guy who upstages the big star at the big home race. Yeah, it was really a, a celebration of, of Colombian cycling. Gaviria got a few wins. Oran won. Uh, Dyer Quintana was performing well. Uh, Sergio Hanal was there. So it was kind of like having, you know, like the, the all-star basketball team play in your high school uh, high school stadium. For the, so the Colombians just went crazy. I mean, the, the fans, where you saw some of the photos that came out of Colombia, it was like the Dutch corner, you know, everywhere across Colombia. So everyone that I talked to, even some people that here at the Ruta were just impressed with the race. There are some people already come flown back from to Europe from Colombia. But it, it, I think it just uh, it says two things. A, this Bernal kid perhaps has the right stuff to really go far in racing. And B, Nairo, the fact that he didn't win this race shows me that Nairo does not want to go too hard too soon, like he's done almost every year in his career so far, he wants to try to hit that peak in July. And, you know, he doesn't, uh, Nairo has nothing to prove. So, you know, maybe let the new kid win, you know, who knows if that was part of the, part of the cards. But uh, I think Nairo really wants to hit that peak in July. He's not too worried about it. You know, I think one of the interesting things about this Oro Ipaz race is um, looking down the road and trying to think of what this race could turn into. You know, this early season, January, February schedule spot. I mean, a decade ago, that's where the Amgen Tour California was. It was this big race that was supposed to grow cycling in the U.S. Of course, once that race got to be big enough, it moved to May and now is a pretty major stop on the World Tour calendar. I'm, I'm really curious to know what Oro Ipaz could turn into. I mean, we have this this nation of Colombia that's churning out all these top-level cyclists. My guess is that there's a lot of talent down the chain that is looking at the success of Quintana and Bernal and Rigoberto Uran and wanting to get to that spot. And so now that they have a race where they can challenge themselves against those riders and maybe you know get on the radar of some of these European races, uh, European racing teams, I wonder if Oro Ipaz will grow in significance on the international calendar. I think that's the idea. That's kind of why they wanted this slot really kind of in early February kind of dovetails in with the uh, race in Argentina, you know, allows the riders to come over from Europe or from the States or Australia or wherever. It's kind of a, that little gap in there for, for an opportunity for Colombia. And this really was a chance for Colombia, I think, to celebrate the new modern face of Colombia as well. I mean, it's had these horror stories over the last 20 or 30 years and that's all in the rearview mirror for Colombia. And I think the, for them to have the ability to have an international event would mean a lot, not only to cycling, but the larger nation as a whole to kind of show this new face of Colombia. It's peaceful, it's prosperous, it's growing. And these cycling guys, they're the big, they're the big stars in uh, Colombian sport right now. You still have a couple of footballers, these uh, soccer guys. There's a few guys that play in the European leagues. But Nairo, Rigoberto Oran, all these guys are household names in Colombia. Well, you know, if Colombia is going to continue to make its push onto the international stage, it does seem like it's going to have to deal with and overcome its doping problems. You know, on the site this week, we had a great column written by Rebecca Reza, 
talking about how Columbia stars need to start preaching the message of anti-doping. As uh, listeners may remember, it was just back in December that the news broke that seven Colombians, eight total riders, seven of them Colombians, had tested positive for doping at this year's Vuelta Colombia, including the current U23 Colombian national champion who is set to go race in Europe. So, you know, it's... It's tough to see something like that and not extrapolate from that out and say, well, if seven guys are testing positive the Vuelta Colombia, how many guys are actually doping? But, you know, I think we all hope for Colombia to continue to make a big splash on the international stage, but it does seem like there's going to have to be some anti-doping and sort of a culture of anti-doping that gets started there. So uh, moving on, this week we have the Tour of Oman going on in Oman. Um, it's not like Dubai in that it's just sort of flat and sprinter trains. There is a climb. Nibali has won there. Green Mountain. Some other climbers have won there. When we look at Oman, what are, the, what, what are we looking for in our racers? What are we trying to learn about the pro peloton at the Tour of Oman? Well, Oman for me is always when you first can see these these climbers face off and that that green mountain climb there's nowhere to hide on it it's it's a tough climb it's wide open and uh you know yeah guy like vincenzo nibali has proven himself there before and i believe roman roman bardet was was up in the front of the race a few times recently it's it's a it's a good test it's not a, a pure test because it's still so far out from the major grand tours but it's good to to finally see these guys in action. Yeah, I think what we're seeing in the racing level, it's so high already. In February, there's races, even the Ruta del Sol this weekend at Valenciana. Last week, we saw you know, Valverde hit, hitting it out, and even the Trudat under uh, the race in Oman. I mean, the, the level's so high now that if you're off the back now, there's no way you're going to catch up, even for July. I mean, that's just how professional and how, how high the levels become in, in professional cycling. Because back in the day, these guys would literally roll up to these races in February. They'd have beer bellies. <laughs> I mean, they'd, be, uh, they'd just be rowing around and, uh, and you know, using these races as training. Now almost every team comes into these races to win. Well, that's a good segue into our last race we want to talk about, which is the Ruta del Sol, which is the race that you, Hoodie, have driven all the way across Spain to attend and normally we would not be sending a person to Ruta del Sol to cover it. It's a nice race. It's a hard race. There's usually some strong riders there, but it's so early that it's kind of a whatever. But of course, this year is different because Mr. Chris Froome has chosen to start his season at Ruta del Sol, and it comes amid all of the news and controversy around his adverse analytical from Salbut of Salbutamol from the Vuelta, that, of course, is still unresolved. We had news break today that a step by the UCI may be taken this week to resolve that. But that's a long-winded way of uh, tossing it back to you, Hoodie. What is the scene like there at Ruta del Sol this year with, uh, with Froome in attendance? What's the vibe going on? It was hard to say, really, because... Uh... This afternoon, Froome still wasn't even here. He was flying in this afternoon, European time, from Monaco. And evidently, he had just flown to Monaco from South Africa, I think, the day before. So 
oh, Chris might have a little bit of uh, jet lag coming into the Rio del Sol. And even tomorrow's stage is kind of, it's a lumpy stage, a lot of four, five, six pretty hard climbs. So we'll see how Froome can perform. But of course, you know, the, how the race unfolds is almost secondary to the hype of what every journalist here is here to, to look and to write about and to talk about is Chris Froome's comeback. There was all the big media were here across Europe, L'Equipe, La Gazette, uh, all the big uh, the English papers, they're all here all trying to get, you know, write stories about Chris Froome. And you can almost imagine Chris Froome's going to step out of the team bus tomorrow and say, sorry, guys, I can't really say much about my case, but I really can't wait to race. <laughs> so by contrast, what would the media presence like be at uh, Ruta del Sol if Chris Froome were not racing under the uh, umbrella of this suspicion? On any given regular year, what would the, what would the media scene be like at Ruta? Yeah, I have been down to this race a few times, and you know, literally, it's about twelve journalists from a handful of local newspapers and Spanish websites. And I asked uh, one of the people at the organization today, uh, you know, how many journalists came for Froome, and they were like, "Oh, look, we had four pages of you know one line written uh, uh, names across typed across the page." So. Uh, the one stat I heard was over 155 credentialed journalists have come oh, for this thing. <laughs> over 10 times. Wow. That's great. That's nuts. <laughs> and so you're going to so be it, battling it, it, with all these it, sweaty journos to try and get a quote from Froome tomorrow. That's very exciting. It could be kind of a, almost like a Tour de France scrum around one bus tomorrow. <laughs> what a zoo. That's ridiculous. So now... I think the other interesting element here, though, is that uh, we, you know, there's a news report out there that um, the UCI is going to basically start proceedings into the Froome case um, this week. Hoodie, what does that mean for Froome at Ruta del Sol? And also, to start, do you really, what do we make of this report? It was from La Gazzetta della Sport, it's an Italian newspaper. For starters, do we feel like this is a reliable report? And, and then from that point on, how is it going to affect the, his race here? Yeah, I mean, I think, that, like I said, is a pretty legitimate source. and They're not going to just make that up. They well, yeah. A, a, they must have a pretty good source inside the UCI, kind of back-channeling some information. I mean, who knows? It might even come from Froome himself. You never know with some of these things. Um, but if that is the case, I think it's still, even if it's that, this level, this, arbit you know, this arbitration panel, uh, I think that's just the first step in what's probably a multi-layer process of presenting information, perhaps, uh, you know, having lawyers sit down and present their case, which might take several days, plus who knows when they have this scheduled. But I think it's an important step towards resolving this thing because everyone's hoping that it gets resolved before the candidates kick too far down the road and we go into the Giro and the Tour and from still racing. So here's a really dumb question. If... It, so the report says that the proceedings might start at the end of this week. Uh, does that mean like Froome would have to leave Ruta del Sol to go to this arbitration, anti-doping arbitration hearing? Yeah, go put on a suit and a tie and go into like a uh, boardroom and talk to some lawyers. Uh, I, I, that's unlikely. Okay. <laughs> I can imagine that. The, I can imagine that the lawyers would probably be doing most of the talking. Uh, Froome might want to go one day to, to, to present his side of the story. But I imagine that uh, if that was the case, they would 
they would schedule that on, on a non-race day. Mm, interesting. Because, I mean, it's really opaque how these things work. So, I mean, truthfully, I, I asked I ask you that question with complete honesty because it, we just aren't really clear on how this tribunal will proceed and what it means and, and even what the defense is probably going to be on Chris from side. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, we're trying to peel back the layers of this thing because a lot of these rules changed uh, around 2015, 2014, 15, coming into this new structure of how all of these anti-doping issues are even handled. Because before, remember, we used to go through the respective national federations, and that's where we saw these inconsistencies where, you know, the Spanish uh, Cycling Federation would handle the Contador case and say, oh, Innocente, or, you know, the, the, you know, or if you had like a hardcore nation and say, oh, you're a band. So they wanted to try to eliminate kind of this hometown favoritism and put it into this kind of more uh, egalitarian way that, that's more less emotional and more factual. I seem to remember that was kind of an issue with the Kreuziger case from from several years ago. Well, in the Valverde case where it was like he couldn't set foot in Switzerland or he'd be arrested or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't want to leave Spain anyway. Speaking of Valverde, no Valverde at Ruta del Sol. That's bump, bummed out. This is his race. He usually wins it with some daring attack. Then solos in for like uh, you know seventy five kilometers and wins. Uh, why did Val- why did La Jet skip this race this year? Is he scared of going up against Chris Froome? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I, you know, I think he just wanted to uh, ease into the into the season a little bit. You know, he's come off that knee injury, and this is a hard race. So I don't think they wanted to put that pressure on Valverde's knee so early in the season. I mean, I think he's doing better now than he expected. I mean, they made the, the racing schedule probably a few months ago. They could say, ah, we'll skip the route of this year. Yeah, he still knows how to win races. Belverde. Yeah. Huh, weird. Love that guy. Turns out. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, so I guess the thing to look for at the Ruta del Sol is how many unwashed, dozens of unwashed journalists are going to be swarming the Sky Booth because that is going to set the tenor for what the rest of the world tour season is going to be like. So I think we have our storylines for the early season. Yes, Spencer. My bet is that Chris Froome says fewer words in his statement than there are actual journalists to okay. listen to them. Yeah, it's like, um, <laughs> I like that. It's like a he's, he's going to keep it to tweet length. Yeah, it'll be like a tweet, basically. <laughs> basically or he'll just refer them to his tweet. Uh, or his Instagram, where he's been posting some nice stuff. There we go. He's such a lovable character. Okay, guys, let's get to the magazine feature. Spencer, this week's episode of the Velo News podcast brought to us by our good friends over at Health IQ. Health IQ is the life insurance company that works with healthy, fit people, people like you and me who get after it on the weekend. We go skiing, we ride our bikes, we go running. Uh, Just we like to get healthy and get fit. That's right. And we have no excuse now not to get life insurance because the rate is really good since we're also healthy. Just go to healthiq.com slash velonews to get your free quote. And thanks for supporting the show. Keep being healthy, everyone. All right, back to the podcast. Okay, Hoodie, we want to talk to you about your magazine feature called Fear Factor. You worked on this over the course of several months, having conversations with riders about what scares them in pro cycling. And as we talked about at the top of the podcast, it's not the thing that most of us think scares them, which is crashes and injuries. 
So let's get to the list. Start listing off some of the things that these riders talked about that really caused them fear and anxiety. Yeah, it was such an interesting kind of road to go down in this conversation about fear. The things that that would perhaps not, uh, seem the most fearful to us mere mortals, it was completely different for, for the, these guys. Uh, uh, one of the fear, the biggest fears they had was their weight. I mean, they're all totally obsessed with their weight, so they're afraid they would be uh, way in too much. Because I remember even at the uh, even at the tour down under, uh, we were all staying in the same hotel, and one of the teams there had a scale outside one of the uh, riders' rooms, and they had to put their weight down every morning. So it's those kinds of things where these guys are just on this this knife edge with only so many different pressures on them. You know, the fear of getting a contract is one of the biggest fears. You know, they're, they're in this game. They've dedicated their whole lives to becoming a professional cyclist, and they want to stay in there. We just saw this uh, one of the young American, uh, Alexia Vermeulen, you know, lost out on his contract extension. And that's the kind of things these guys have to deal with all the time. Contracts, uh, weight, uh, just mind games around the dinner table. What about the fear of the pressure to perform? I thought that was really something interesting that came out of your interview with Tyler Farah, a longtime American sprinter who retired this past year, is, you know, being a guy where the expectation is there for you to win a race, whether you're a GC rider or a sprinter, but there's all this expectation placed on you to do a job. And, you know, when the form isn't there or there's just some self-doubt, it seems like uh, the fear and anxiety can really quickly take over some of these guys. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Farah had some interesting things to say because he had a nice run there for two or three years where he was winning stages of the Tour, winning one-day classic, Shell Dupree, winning uh, the Hamburg Classic, stages in the Giro, Torino Adriatico. And then he said suddenly he just stopped winning. He couldn't buy a win. He was uh, second, third, fourth. And then that just compounds. You know, you're, you're not confident in a sprint. You're off the back wheel. You're crashing. Your team gets frustrated because they're killing themselves to set you up and you can't deliver. So it, it's kind of like these psychological, uh, these tensions and these fears just permeate through the entire organization when things go off the rails. Did you get the impression that after he sort of accepted his role more as a road captain and domestique in his later years on Dimension Data, that it helped sort of ease those fears and make his life less stressful as a pro cyclist, Hoodie? Yeah, that's right, Spencer. He was really, uh, he transitioned into truth, kind of being the, the man, the leader of the team to being kind of a road captain. And he said he really enjoyed his last couple of seasons riding with Dimension Data, helping these young African kids. And in fact, he had one more year left on his contract and he decided to walk away on his terms just because he said his mind wasn't in anymore. He just didn't, didn't, didn't want to suffer, didn't want to be there in that tension all the time to perform. Even as a road captain, you have to be at a very good level. And he he decided to walk away and now he wants to be a firefighter because he wants to give something back to you know the larger humanity because he said that as an elite cyclist everything's about you and after 20 years of that level because i wanted to give something back to the community uh an interesting tidbit there i found of pharaoh was that he when when he started to lose sprints so he went from winning sprints and then all of a sudden he started to lose them he found himself taking chances in the sprints like chances that he otherwise would not have so he was there was the fear of failure, which actually made him ride more dangerously and basically overcome the fear associated with crashing. 
Um, but that that didn't always play out for him because he found himself crashing more often. Yeah, it was an interesting dichotomy there because he said the way that the races evolved, they become harder and harder over the last decade. You know, they're kicking in these little Cat 3s, sometimes Cat 2s, going into what normally would just be a straight flat approach to a, a sprint finish. And that's where he said that he started to, to lose that wheel because when he come into the sprint after doing one or two or three climbs in the last 50K, he just didn't have the motor to be right there at the front of the bunch. So he's on that second or third wheel. And for him to try to get to the front in those last 300 meters, that's when he started to crash a lot more. So Hoodie, let's uh, move on to how some of these guys and gals deal with the fear and anxiety. I know you spoke to sports psychologists, you spoke to lots of different riders. You know, what are some of the stories that came out of how these riders cope with the anxiety and the fear of cycling? Yeah, I think a, a, a lot of the peloton now is, is more attuned to kind of the, the mental part of this game. I mean, cycling's always been such a hard man sport, a macho kind of game. People were afraid to even speak about their fears or anxieties or frustrations because if you start to complain about how cold it was or how dangerous the sport is, you were just looked upon as like the weak, weak link in the chain. So I think teams are being more uh, communicating among themselves, you know, in terms of having some of the bigger teams have sports psychologists on staff, even though a few writers told me that's not always the best person to talk to because they're afraid if they talk to the team sports psychologist, he's going to be on the phone to the team general manager saying, oh, you know, Fred, he's kind of scared about those sprints these days. That's crazy, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's that's no laughing matter. That's like a serious breach of like, patient doctor confidentiality as far as i'm concerned yeah spencer's a real head case get him off the podcast he's scared i'm not even joking i mean if you think about that that's like really messed up that they could could, could potentially not be able to trust a sports psychologist like that that's actually in you know in place there to help them or the team directors would rely on intel from team doctors and sports psychologists to have them make sporting moves. Did, uh, Hoodie, is there? Can you? Is that just a, a stray fear that these riders have, or is there real kind of evidence of that sort of thing happening behind the scenes? Well, I think it was more. It became more of an anecdotal uh, concern that one of the psychologists, a, a former rower, actually, uh, Gerald Towney, who works with. Uh, Education First, he's an Irish rower who's kind of started this uh, company to help elite athletes transition and transition to their after professional lives. And he was talking about that anecdote, and it, and it applies to, I think, a few of the bigger teams might have that on staff. But there was no specific example of a sports psychologist paid by this a team staff you know, uh, exploiting that relationship. But it's a fear that they have. You know, They don't want to talk to someone to reveal that fear that they might have of right. an aspect of their racing career. Yeah, the trust the trust isn't there, essentially. What about some of the stories you heard about uh, meditation, um, yoga, you know, using um, meditation to overcome some of these anxieties? I know you talked to Swain Tuft about that, for example. Yeah, Swain's a, an interesting character. I think he, he said he's been trying to spread the gospel among his uh, colleagues in the Peloton about his his kind of a way of dealing with the stress and, and that comes with uh, being a professional athlete. You're seeing a lot of teams kind of incorporate not only core training, but uh, yoga and even some meditation to some of their training camps just to kind of open the eyes to these riders 
that they can kind of explore the, the mental side of the game and really embrace that because, you know, what's a fear also it can be a strength if you overcome these, you start turning those fears and frustrations into a, a weapon. That's some of the writers in the past have been notoriously strong-minded and they've used that to pummel their their rivals over the years. There's a few examples. Hoodie, can you think of a specific writer throughout the course of reporting this story that you that that really found a way to overcome a specific fear and become quite successful? Is there is there a real like kind of success story here? Yeah, I think that uh, you know Spain Sup is kind of the guy that 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 I talked to that really has been kind of embraced this kind of uh, mental spiritual side almost to his personal routine of having, he says every day after a hard race, he'll kind of take a few minutes to meditate just to either breathe, do breathing exercises that he has, or, or even some uh, yoga poses that just kind of takes his mind away from the intensity of what racing is. And, the, and because these guys, you know, the men and the women professional racers these days basically have to live this lifestyle 24 seven. And it's such an intense part and dedication of, of, of everything they have to do, mind, body, and soul, that sometimes I think people, you know, you're not, everything's trained physically, but not part of the mental aspect of the game. I mean, I know I'm always so impressed when I see a pro rider who has had a crash, like a bad crash, and they're not just back up their racing, but like taking chances on the descent, racing in the pack, because I know just from my own totally lame experiences of crashing <laughs> in my bike in like a cat three race. The next time that I'm on my bike in a group ride or whatever, you know, you, you're a little, you're gun shy. I remember one time going down a descent and my front tire blew out and I just scrubbed it through a hairpin. Oh. Yeah. And it was like for the next year, every time I came up to a hairpin, it was like, Oh, are my tires actually going to hold? And now, you know, you talk about someone like Annemiek van Vleuten who crashes in Rio coming down that descent fractures a bone in her neck. I mean, really messes herself up. And then it's like a couple weeks later and you see her back racing again. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where these riders do have all these tools open to them. But at a certain point, I just, you know, I think some of these athletes might be wired differently. Different breed. Different, it's a different breed. Wired differently yeah. than uh, regular people like us. Because, I mean, I get scared when I turn on and fire up the laptop every day, it's, you know? It's a scary world. Is, is yeah. Spencer going to edit my story and tell me that <laughs> it was just full of spelling errors? I'm more worried. I'm more scared of the Twitter, you know, getting out. Get on, anytime you open Twitter, that's scary for yeah, me. Yeah, well, Twitter is just, it's just <laughs> terrifying. Uh, anyway, great story, Hoodie. It's called Fear Factor. It's in the January-February issue of Velanese Magazine. Nice picture of Sepp Cuss on the cover with the new science of climbing as the headline. So go check it out. Okay, guys, before we get out of here this week, I think we need to do some off the front and off the back. That, of course, is the proverbial hot or not what's going on in the sport of cycling. I think I'll go first. Usually I toss it to you, Spencer. And put I'm you glad on the spot. you're going first because I didn't have a good one prepared yet. Okay. <laughs> Off the front is disc brake 
arguments. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. We had the final leg of, I believe, the DVV trophy, or was it Super Super Prestige? I, I think it was the. Uh, I can't remember which. I Look at that cyclocross yeah. world championships ends, Once and all of a sudden we, for, we forget what's going on in cross worlds. But uh, American racer Katie Compton unfortunately was caught in a crash early in the race and hit her knee on a disc brake rotor, Ooh. cut it open. Mark, her husband, put the photos all over the internet for us to see, and the disc brake um, argument kind of got started, but not really, because I feel like both Katie Compton and her husband had a pretty good uh, perspective on it, which is that, um, you know, disc brakes are awesome for cross, and maybe we need to go about uh, dulling down the rotors, or basically just not pulling sketchy moves and crashing out people in cross races. Uh, still, though, it was a it was a pretty nasty image. So you know, we hope Katie gets better and heals up soon. But the arguments and the debate around disc brake rotors, hot, 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 um, not, not, not. Boy, what is not hot right now? Uh, I guess I would say not hot is the performance of Americans and Europeans at the Oro y Paz race because boy, those Colombians were super fast. And uh, you know, Julian Alaphilippe, kudos to him for winning a stage. Yeah, he was the only one who really carried the flag, so to speak. Yeah, but otherwise, non-Colombian riders just getting shot out the back. So, not hot for you. Off the back, literally off the back. Uh, okay, Spencer, what's off the front? What's off the back? Oh, okay. I'm ready to go. All right. Hoodie's ready to go. Okay. Hoodie, what's off the front? What's off the back? Off the front for me is Colombia. Just that spectacle of seeing so many people on the road at the Oro Pass race really just kind of reconfirmed how huge the sport is in Colombia and how I hope if there's enough money there and enough backing that really can emerge as a premier early season race. And for me off the bag, I have to, I have to throw it to the UCI over this Froome business because, you know, Spencer's question earlier, you know, we've all had those questions. We have no idea what is supposed to happen with this Froome case. And I mean, they did send a little UCI press release when this first thing blew open, but they could do a lot more to proactively explain this process because, it's leaving it up to everyone else to make up their own minds. And most people are making up their own minds based on wrong information. Uh, you know, our part of our job in the media is to try to figure this stuff out. But man, if you read that water code, you know, English is not their first language in uh, the mm -hmm. water code. Let me just put it that way. And you need to be a lawyer to kind of parse that thing out. So sometimes it gets real confusing for the cycling public to really get their head around that issue. I think there's a lot of damage being done to, to Froome, to the sport, and to the whole cycling community because of a lack of clear communication on this issue. Yeah, legalese is never the best way to get information across in any situation. Just say no to legalese. Mm, agreed. All right, Spencer. I know, you're on the spot. I, I think I'm ready, though. I think What's I'm ready. off the front and off the back? My off the front is pretty much anyone wearing a blue and white jersey, namely the quick step team jersey, because Fernando Gaviria wins three stages at Oro y Paz. Uh, Elia Viviani, new to the team, wins two stages in Dubai Tour, wins the overall. It's, I mean, yeah, quick step is and continues to be just the team of reference when it comes to anything fast. Chapeau, quick step. 
Yes. And then off the back is anyone wearing a red and white jersey, I would say, generally speaking. And that is Katusha Alpeson, who failed to deliver new sprinter Marcel Kittle to any stage wins at the Dubai Tour. Uh, yeah, they're still figuring out their sprint train. Yeah, it's only February, but uh, usually these Middle Eastern races are easy pickings for a guy like Marcel Kittle. Dolph Lundgren lookalike <laughs> yes. should be winning races. Uh, especially on this team that has the hair care sponsor, because we, as we all know, yeah, I mean, he is like on the Mount Rushmore of good cycling hair. It's a match made in heaven. It's true. Disappointing. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velonews. The Velonews podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, leave you the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Soul Drums.